Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Tomasetti, back with this month's Flight Test Safety Podcast. Here in the studio, it's the first week of February. Now, a couple of things happened recently that gave me the idea for this month's focus topic. In the past few weeks, you've probably seen notifications recalling the space shuttle accidents, Challenger in 1986 and Columbia in 2003. And then last week, I gave a safety day talk about using the no vote. So I thought that might be a good topic for this month's monthly focus. So first, let's start with a clip from the SCTP annual symposium of September 2003 and the oral history panel focused on the shuttle program. The moderator was David Hartman, and he is talking to Dick Truly, retired vice admiral, former fighter pilot, engineer, astronaut, and the eighth administrator for NASA, and Scott Altman, a retired U.S. Navy captain, test pilot, astronaut, and veteran of four space shuttle missions. Let's head back to that session and listen in. There were so many more flights that we could talk about and, and, and learn things, uh, but we need to save a few minutes to talk about what's happened since Challenger and since the recent tragedy. Dick, you were so involved with that CRIP2, the investigation, and getting back to flight after Challenger. What was learned then? I had, uh, I had left the program in Houston after that night uh, flight, and I was commander Naval Space Command. And, and like the rest of the nation and everybody in here, Everybody was just totally shocked. We all knew that sooner or later uh, there was going to be some kind of an incident or accident. We didn't know when it was going to be, but suddenly it happened and the whole, the, everything was changed. Uh, I got a call one night uh, from the Secretary of the Navy's office. I, was, uh, I had no intention of going back to NASA. And uh, I was a junior one star at the time, and I figured, you know, a phone call from the secretary is either real good or real bad. <laughs> and it was John Lehman, and he started talking to me. Uh, this was about two weeks after the accident. And he started talking to me about this job back at NASA uh, to do the, to the investigation and the return to flight. And he said, Dick, I've already talked to the CNO. And he and I both think this is a dynamite idea for you to go do this. What do you think? <laughs> so I said, Mr. Secretary, if you and the CNO think this is a dynamite idea, I guess that makes it a dynamite idea. <laughs> Two days later, I was pulled out of that command and back in NASA headquarters. And uh, I thought, frankly, that I had, uh, and my responsibilities were, on the one hand, to lead the NASA engineering put together the NASA engineering side of the investigation that was being done by the Rogers Commission, and on the other hand, uh, create a strategy that we could get back to flight. Uh, I also thought that because of my experience in shuttle that my job was to do those things. But I, uh, I found out within 48 hours that my real job was to be the Washington pounding point for the media and the Congress and the White House and really to protect the system to allow them to, to do that. And I'm sure that some of that is going on today uh, in NASA after, after Columbia. At any rate, uh, within a few weeks, I realized that the, all of the uh, things that were going on in the media accusing NASA of uh, failures of the commu communications and so forth, much of which was true, I believe, 
I realized that we really needed to get ahead of the Rogers Commission and build a strategy to get back to flight. And so we wrote a, a memorandum that laid out a, what we were going to do until we flew, before we flew again. Things like uh, the, what the, the ops rules were going to be for the first flight, for the first year of flight. Uh, we were going to recertify the shuttle system, which we did. We had lots of other problems beside the solid rocket motor. And so, really, by the time the Rogers Commission uh, made their report, uh, we really had a plan to that, and our job was to uh, execute that plan. We got the Rogers uh, Commission report, modified it uh, a little bit, but essentially, uh, two and a half years later, and it took that long because we had to redesign and and, and fire seven uh, full-scale test, uh, tests of the new solid rocket motor. Uh, two and a half years later, Rick Houck, who's in the audience here tonight, or this afternoon, and uh, his crew uh, went back into space in August of uh, 1988, if I remember right. Scott, uh, long build-up to you, but you're, you're there now. Um, this investigation report, which we've all been reading about, seems to be, to a great extent, focusing on what they are calling, in quotation marks, a broken safety culture. Dick Covey has spoken about it publicly and others. Um, what is the broken safety culture? How do you all feel about it, given that you hope to fly? Well, uh, I've been part of the investigation, uh, coordinating the astronaut office's involvement as we went forward and looked at what happened to Columbia, and then uh, to some extent, what steps do we need to take to return to flight? And it really follows uh, parallels with what Admiral Truly described. Uh, of course, that's the hardware side of things, uh, what needs to be fixed. Then there's the, the culture part, and that's, of course, a lot harder to put your finger on. How do you change that and what needs to be changed? I think everybody realizes that uh, traveling in space is, in fact, a risky business. There is. Uh, a level of risk that's inherent every time you try to do something, you know, travel at speeds that were discussed, Mach 25, that uh, it's difficult to do. And while we all want to evolve in the direction of making spaceflight routine, uh, there's a danger if you ever assume that it's uh, too routine. Uh, so that is the, the dynamic, I think, that we're faced with here as we uh, attempt to return to flight and change the culture a little bit to realize that flying in space is not something that uh, is done every day yet, even though space flight certainly is uh, more routine now, or at least seen that way with folks uh, when you compare. You know, I was thinking about sitting up here on the podium with four famous guys, and then who the heck is that guy down there on the end? Uh, the astronaut visibility isn't the same as it was when they were uh, making those first pioneering steps into space. When you hear, when you hear the term, Scott, schedule driven, uh, to what extent has that been anything any of you have been concerned about, especially now? Well, especially in return to flight, uh, it's something that we've looked at as the first few dates came out. We were talking about flying in the fall and then uh, the date of March that was discussed a lot. And as I sat at meetings, the one thing that you were most concerned about is when somebody said, well, we want to fix this, but we can't do that by March, so we'll have to defer that for later. And the whole astronaut office uh, concern and that the program has adapted is let's decide what the requirements are for a safe return to flight first 
and then figure out how long it takes to meet those requirements, and that sets your schedule so that schedule falls out rather than drives uh, the process. So think back to when you were first learning to talk, or if you're like me and can't remember back that far, think about teaching your kids or younger siblings to talk. One of the first words we all learn, maybe even before mama and dada, is no. It's a simple word. It's a small word, but maybe one of the most impactful words in our language. So today I'm thinking about it in reference to something we are all familiar with called the no vote. Now, interestingly enough, if you do a search today on the Internet for the no vote, you will most likely get a lot of hits related to politics. But the no vote I'm talking about is when someone in an organization believes they see a situation developing that should be stopped and uses the no vote to stop or at least pause things. Now, if you are tenacious in your internet search for the no vote, you might eventually come across the agenda for the 2008 Flight Test Safety Workshop, where then Colonel Tomasetti presented a paper titled Saying Yes to the No Vote. Now, at that time, I was about a year after my squadron command tour. I had been a test pilot for about 10 years and had definitely had many encounters with the no vote. From using it or not using it myself, to having to decide what to do when others used it or didn't use it in a leadership role. The shuttle accidents produced a lot of documentation, not only on technical factors, but organizational factors that contributed to those incidents. And as I was putting my presentation together, I had done research into both. In my talk, I was able to discuss some of the reasons why the no vote doesn't get used. Simple things like curiosity or misjudgment, and then more concerning things like arrogance, pressure, and fear. And while I was able to learn a lot from studying different incidents, Maybe the most powerful lessons came when I really took a hard look at some of my own experiences. There was the time when I should have used a no vote, but didn't. When my overconfidence, rationalization, and failure to really assess risk versus gain resulted in landing an airplane in the dirt between the runway and the taxiway during a night mission in the desert. Yes, Turbo's near-death experience number four. And then there was the other time where I did use the no vote. When I stopped in a attempt at an additional test point at the end of a very highly successful mission because things weren't going as predicted. And lastly, reflecting on my time in command and trying to analyze whether I created a climate where people not only felt like they could use the no vote, but felt like they were expected to use it if the situation warranted. I was able to pull on all those experiences when talking about the no vote to others. But I often wondered if it resonated, if it sank in. You know, usually I would get nods and everyone kind of gives that knowing smile as if they were recalling situations in their experience. All things that led me to believe that they understood the no vote. But I still wondered if it sank in to the organization, if it sank in to the culture. Now, the mechanics of the no vote are pretty simple. You need to see it. And that is see as something that isn't right. You need to say it, actually articulate the word no or stop or abort or something along those lines. And then you need to okay it. That means you actually acknowledge it and do something about it. All sounds simple, right? Probably could even put it on a bumper sticker. The no vote. See it, say it, okay it. Although I'm not sure how much of a demand there is for safety-related bumper stickers nowadays. But simple, right? But as Clausewitz said about the simplicity of war, sometimes even the simple things are difficult. So let's make no bones about it. In certain environments, in some organizations, using no vote can be hard. It can be really hard. It can be lose your job kind of hard. I know that sounds horrible, but it is unfortunately realistic. 
When you look at incidents, it is usually pretty easy to see when the no vote should have been used or maybe when it should have been acknowledged if it was used. But I think we can also learn from incidents where the no vote was used, where it was acknowledged, and maybe, just maybe, something bad was prevented. Of course, we never know that for sure. But my example I mentioned about the extra test point at the end of the successful mission is a good one. The objectives of the flight had been accomplished, and we were truly attempting something that was a bonus. It was a high-visibility project, so there was definitely some ego-increasing possibilities that existed. Program ego and my ego, of course. But partway through the test point, the aircraft did something unpredicted. I aborted the test point and stabilized the aircraft. In my best professional engineering test pilot voice, I posed an engineering test pilot question to the control room. Um, what was that? And as happens in these situations, I got the concise response. Copy. Uh, stand by. Now I know that people were furiously looking at strip charts and combing through data and having detailed discussions, so I did just that. I stood by. After an eternity, or maybe just a minute in real time, the control room informed me that... There were no problems with the aircraft, and I was clear to attempt the test point again. Yes! Excellent. My ego comes up on my internal hot mic and says, Come on, let's do this. Fame and fortune await. Yes, my ego sounds a little bit like Kylo Ren, and no, there was probably no fame and definitely no fortune awaiting at the end. But it sure sounded good. But then I said something that took me a little bit by surprise. No, I think we're done for the day. I saw something that wasn't right, wasn't as predicted. I said no. And then the control room said okay. Now, someone could have objected or at least challenged. I mean, I was pretty junior in the group at the time. There wasn't anything wrong with the aircraft. And while optional, it was a highly desirable test point to get. But even the people who wanted to try again were okay with me saying no. See, somehow we had a culture where anyone, even a junior person on the program, could exercise the no vote. How did we do that? How did that happen? Well, there were two things I think were key to that culture existing. One, the leaders not only said it was okay, but convinced you it was expected of you to use the no vote if the situation warranted. And two, everyone, or at least I think everyone, believed that. And while we think that the no vote starts with the person who sees something concerning and says something about it, I think it really starts with the leadership of an organization establishing an environment where it is okay to say it. Hang on, this is a podcast. We can make that a little bit more dramatic. While we think the no vote starts with that person who sees something sees concerning something and says something, says about, something about, it, about it, it really starts with the leadership of an organization establishing an environment where it's okay, it's okay to, say to say it. Much better. So now ask yourself, are you in an environment where you can see it, say it, and okay it when it comes to the no vote? If you are, awesome. Protect that culture. And if you're not, look for ways you can change that. And now for our On the Web segment. As you know, you can find information for our organizations on their home pages. But did you also know that you can stay connected with our organizations through social media? That's right. SCTP, SFTE, AIAA, and even the Flight Test Safety Committee all have social media accounts. We've highlighted a few of those links in the podcast description. The Flight Test Safety Fact is off this month, but it'll be back next month, so stay tuned. 
And lastly, for upcoming events, there's still a lot of uncertainty due to COVID-19, so I encourage you to check each organization's websites for the latest information on any upcoming events. There is, however, one virtual event I'll mention. AIAA will be hosting a virtual lecture by Dr. Robert Wynn entitled Anatomy of an In-Flight Breakup on the 18th of February. You can find details on their website. Well, that'll wrap us up for the month of February. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please keep the feedback coming, keep the comments coming, and keep the suggestions coming. And by all means, please share this with people you think could benefit from listening. Stay well for now, and as always, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time.com the number two, climb.com.